Hey, good morning, everybody. I just got up here. Um, good to see you guys. I'm Tim. I'm the campus pastor down at the Bearden campus. Shout out to Bearden. My folks are down there and out at Harrison Lane. We got folks down the hall here. I'm glad I get to be um, with you guys here today at Harrison Lane. And we're going to be jumping back into the book of Genesis in this series that we're in um, called Building Faith. And uh, I have to just, I wonder if you guys have ever had an experience that I have or you feel the thing that I feel. Maybe it's just me, but you're driving down the road at, um, and somebody goes by you like 20, 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, right? You're going 10 over because you're a good citizen, right? Um, but they're really speeding and they go past you. And if you're like me, the thing you think is, oh man, wouldn't it be great to come over the next hill and to see him pulled over on the side of the road getting a ticket, you know, because it's a race. Even though they don't know it's a race, even though there's no finish line, different finish lines, every, every drive for me is a race. So that's what I always think. Oh, they're speeding. They're breaking the law worse than me. I hope they get pulled over. I was talking about that with Dave Nichols. He's like, oh, I, I, it happened to me once where I actually saw that happen. He's like, no, I had something even better happen. A guy went flying by me on a motorcycle. A couple, meter, a couple miles later, I come down the road. He's on the side of the road, and his motorcycle's on fire. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that had to be amazing. Dave's exact words? It was glorious. <laughs> His motorcycle was on fire, you know? Um, we're going to look at a story like that today, like a motorcycle on fire, point and laugh at him kind of story, except that kind of thing is only good when it happens to somebody else. Um, and some of us know what it's like to have our motorcycle catch on fire in life, you know? And so this story is going to matter to us. Um, we're working our way through the book of Genesis, and, and like I said, we got a story story today. And it's actually, it's actually really a story of, it's got, it's like a story of love and romance. There's a lot of that in there, but it's as messed up and, and just twisted as, as any like romantic drama that anybody's put, ever put on screen. So what I'm going to try and do as we head towards that, is I'm going to try and catch you up to where we are in the story. Because in the last several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Abraham um, and what God was doing in his life. We've looked at the, li at the life of Isaac, Abraham's son. Last week we were looking at the fact that God had promised um, to be with Isaac, to never leave him, and, and how that's kind of a picture and a reminder of what Jesus said to his disciples as he was preparing to return to heaven, and he said, um, I am with you even to the very end of the age. Jesus promised to be with his people, and by his spirit he's with us, and it's it's. It's in the presence of Jesus that our, it's, it's by his presence that our faith grows. Our faith is, is based on the fact that God is with us now. So then what happens next is Isaac, Abraham's son, Isaac has two sons, twin boys. Esau is born first, and then Jacob is born second. Esau is older, Jacob's younger. That, that matters in their story. Um, he has these twin boys, and at the point uh, where we are in the story today, we're looking at Jacob's youngest, Isaac's youngest son, Jacob. At this point, Jacob has a reputation already. If you've read the story up to this point, Jacob has a reputation as a, um, as a swindler, uh, as a deceiver, a cheat, a charlatan, a rogue, a scoundrel, a ne'er-do-well, whatever, you you know, whatever kind of language you want to use, that's the guy that he is. That's his reputation, and it's a well-deserved reputation. Um, most famous, I mean, he's done a bunch of things, but most famously, uh, what you might know Jacob for is he, I mean, he lied, just his poor, dear, old, blind father, he just lied to him and deceived him so that he could steal away from his older brother Esau, 
his father's blessing. Should have gone because Esau was the firstborn, should have gone to Esau, and Jacob lies his way through, deceives all the way through, and he receives the blessing instead. So if you've read that story, if you read Genesis 27, you finish it thinking, Jacob needs a taste of his own medicine, you know? Well, he's going to get it in spades, all right? He, he, his motorcycle is going to catch on fire in this story. So, but here's the thing. In this story, we won't just walk away happy that the swindler got swindled, okay? You might feel a little bit of, oh, good, he's got, he got what's coming. But it's more than that. What we actually get in Jacob's story is what we always get in Scripture, a picture of a very flawed human being who interacts with the living God. And in it, you get to see what that God is like. That's what the story really does. That's what this story is supposed to do. It's not just supposed to make you go, oh, I'm glad he got it. No, you go, time and time again, that's, that's what the scripture does for us. Here's a, a deeply flawed person, but they have an interaction. They enter into a relationship with the living God, and he does something to them and in them and through them and changes them. That's who God is. So we learn who God is and what he's like by this story. And one of the things that I think we'll see, this is, this is kind of the, the big overarching thing that we'll see as we look at this today, is that, is that faith is built when life disappoints us. Jacob is going to face a bunch of disappointments. It's a mess. But we're going to see his faith built through that. And that's the, that's the reality of how God works. Faith is built when life disappoint, disappoints us. It's not the only time it, that our faith is built, but God does that. He works in those disappointments. And that shouldn't come as a surprise if you're familiar with Scripture at all. The New Testament re- teaches that idea repeatedly, explicitly. It's very clear about it. So the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, when he's writing a letter, he says to some Christians who are suffering, he says, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, disappointments. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, you're going through some suffering. It's going to happen for a little while, but it's going to test the genuineness of your faith. Just like gold that's refined by fire, but gold eventually will disappear, but your faith will last after it's been tested. That's the way it works. Our faith is built in the disappointments of life. James, Jesus' half-brother, says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's something that God does when our faith is tested in disappointment, in trials. Faith is built when life disappoints us, when it's tested. But here's what's important, I think, for us to understand, is those are not just nice, encouraging words to Christians who are going through a hard time. They're not just, you know, nice things to keep you going. They're not just motivational posters. It's the consistent reality of life with God. You look at, the, at what happened, the life of the disciples, of the apostles in the book of Acts. That's what happened. It's hard times. It's disappointments. And it's faith being built. And you can go way back in God's story to Jacob's life, and you see it there too. So that's what we're going to do. Turn to Genesis 29. Um, you're going to want to have it in front of you, open your Bible, find it on your phone, because we're going to hop in and out of the story. It's a long story, Genesis 29, 30. We'll even get to a little bit of chapter 31. We can't read all three chapters, so you're going to want to have it in front of you. Genesis 29, we'll pick up the story there. Where we are is Jacob has left his homeland. His dad, Isaac, sends him on a mission. The mission, go find a wife. So he's supposed to go find a wife in a place called Paddan Aram. It's to the northeast of where he lives, about 400, 500 miles away. He's supposed to go there. It's where his mom, Rebecca, is from. 
So Isaac's wife, Rebecca, came from that part of the world. It's where her family is from. Her uncle Laban lives, um, lives back there. Maybe you remember that story from a couple weeks ago. Jacob's supposed to go there and find a wife. So that's what he does. And on the way there, one night he has a dream. And in the dream, God reveals himself to Jacob. He reveals himself to Jacob, and, uh, and he, re- he renews the, the promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac, um, that, that his descendants would have a land, promises that they would have a land. He, he, he tells them that his descendants will, will become a great nation, and that all of the world will be blessed through his offspring. So God makes these incredible um, promises, renews the promises that he'd given to his forefathers. And then God says to him, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God's going to be with him all along the way. He's never going to leave him. Smooth sailing from now on, right? That's called foreshadowing, okay? It's not going to be smooth. Um, Pick it up in chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey. And came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? That's Jacob's uncle. They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So long journey, Jacob comes to a well. Now he knows the story of his mom and dad. He knows Rebecca's story. He's got that going in his mind. I'm sure he does. And he knows that Rebecca, his mother, was at a well in a place just like this, a well just like this, when Grandpa Abe's servant showed up. And Grandpa Abe's servant was there to find a wife, and he prayed that God would make clear who the wife was supposed to be for Isaac. And he prayed, and God made it clear that it was Rebecca, and it became a great love story, and they got married. And so Jacob's like, oh, yeah, I'm in the right place. It's all coming together. I'm at the well, and there's a beautiful woman. And so then he just like, he kind of just like, he jumps up from where he is. Instead of waiting for the shepherds to roll the stone away, he just hulks out by himself, rolls the stone off of the well, sees Rachel, runs over, plants a kiss on her, and starts to cry. It's a, it's a really good story, you know? Now, it's not, it's not exactly what it sounds like. It's not like love at first sight, and so he plants a kiss on her. It's not a romantic kiss. It's a kiss of greeting. It's culturally appropriate. In the next verse, his uncle kisses him in the, the same way, okay? But it's a kiss of greeting, and he's just so happy to be there. After, I mean, you can imagine four, 500 miles of traveling, hoping he would find this place. He's found it, and he's just overcome, and he weeps. 
So what Jacob does is he stays there for a month working for his uncle Laban. And then his uncle comes to him and says, look, great, Jacob, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you're working for me. You can't work for free. I'm a fair guy. I'm not going to mistreat you. Also foreshadowing. Um, hey, tell me, tell me, what's your wages? What do you need? What do you want to do in exchange for the work for me? And look at verse 16. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I told you. It's a love story. It's a beautiful thing. He sees, you know, in that first month there, he just falls in love with Rachel. And so he's like, I'll work seven years. And, um, and then all I ask is that you give me your daughter, Rachel, as my wife. And at this point in the story, everything is going amazing. He's found this beautiful woman of his dreams. He's madly in love. He's about to marry her. And Jacob had to be going, God is really coming through on his promise. He said he was going to be with me. He was going to bless me, bless the whole world through me. It's happening. And then comes the wedding. This is where the story goes off the rails, okay? Um, this is where it gets really messed up. So as was the custom, the father of the bride throws a big feast. Um, they probably would have had food and drink, lots of it. And they probably would have read the marriage contract, Allowed. It was a formal thing. So I can imagine Laban says something like, Jacob has agreed to work, for, to work seven years for me, and as his wages, he receives my daughter as his wife. He probably was very careful about his wording there. So it's late in the night. You've got to imagine now. This isn't like our wedding receptions, okay? There's no floodlights. It's late at the night, in the night. It's dark. The bride has been wearing a veil the whole time. They've probably been drinking a lot of wine. Maybe Jacob has been drinking a lot of wine. And off he goes with his new wife into the tent. The next morning, the sun comes up. There's light. And Jacob looks, and it is not Rachel. It's her big sister, Leah. It's, he didn't marry the woman he thought he was going to marry. He's, he's been swindled. The swindler just got swindled. Jacob's motorcycle is on fire, all right? <laughs> what goes around comes around. He says to Laban, hey, that's not what we agreed to. Why did you deceive me? I mean, can you imagine that conversation? First, the conversation between him and Leah. That wasn't fun for anybody. And now he goes to Laban, to his, to, to his new father-in-law. He says, what's going on? Why did you do this to me? Look at verse 26. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Hey, you should have mentioned that earlier, you know? <laughs> but don't miss what he's saying here. Laban says to Jacob, Jacob, the younger brother who cheated his older brother to become first for the blessing. That guy. He says to him, that's not how it's done. The younger can't go before the firstborn. There's no way Jacob misses the irony, you know? There's, there's no way he misses what's going on here. And I imagine he's going, yep, you reap what you sow, because Jacob just had a big bowl of deception for breakfast. You know, that's what, that's what he was all about, deceiving to get what, what, what he wanted, and now it got pulled on him. So Laban has a solution. 
Spend the week with Leah. A week-long marriage celebration was the normal thing in their culture. So spend your week with Leah, and then you can marry Rachel. All you have to do is work seven more years. So that's the plan. So just imagine, get your head into Jacob's head. Two weeks earlier, Jacob is about to marry the woman of his dreams after seven years of hard, works, after, of hard work. Now he's got two sister wives, one who he doesn't love and apparently isn't attracted to. Um, the two of them are going to hate each other soon if they don't already, and he's got to work seven more years to put money in the pocket of the guy who put him in this situation. That's a mess. You have to wonder if he's starting to wonder, is God still really with me? Is God actually going to keep the promises that he said? Because this situation stinks for everybody. And doesn't it seem like, like if you, again, if you put yourself in Jacob's position, doesn't it kind of seem like that's the way the world works so often? For us, like it's one thing to sit in church and hear some great promises of God, and to hear how he's always going to be with you, and he's always going to take care of you, and you hear that, and you go, yeah, I believe it, and then you walk out the doors, and the train wrecks start to happen, and you start to go, wait a second, maybe those things don't apply to me and to my situation. You start living your life, and it starts to get difficult, and you go, this situation stinks for everybody, or at least it stinks for me. Is God doing what he said he did? Will he do what he said he would? For Jacob, for Leah, for Rebecca, for all of us, there's like, you, you find moments of disappointment like this, and you go, God, what in the world are you doing? Have you forgotten what you said you would do? It becomes hard to believe that God is who he says he is. And as you know, some of those disappointments in our lives are our own doing. They come by our own foolishness, our own selfishness. Some of those dis- disappointments are caused by somebody else's. And some of them, the reality is, are things that just happen in life. Nobody's fault. It's just a broken world. But what we want to know in those moments is, God, what are you doing when those things are happening? You and I haven't gotten to see the end of our stories yet. But we can see where Jacob's story goes. And so that's why it's important for us to see God is using all of this mess. He's using all of this disappointment to shape Jacob's faith. By the end of this story, we're going to see that God has done something in Jacob, that he is a different kind of person by the end of his story. It's what God does over and over and over in Scripture, is he calls someone to be his, to follow him, to belong to him, and then he shapes those people to be his people. He calls Jacob, he says, you're going you're to be mine, and I'm going to be your God. And now I'm going to shape you so that you're mine and that I'm your God. He shapes his faith in those disappointments. That's what God does in us. It's so important for us to remember that. God is still shaping me in my disappointment. When I run into disappointment in life, it doesn't mean that it's over. It means that, okay, God is shaping me. It's what he does. He's called you to belong to him, and now he's going to shape you to be like one who belongs to him. I heard one pastor say, Jacob was a piece of work but he also was a work in progress. And maybe you can see yourself in that. At least the first half of it, go, yeah, I'm a piece of work. You know, the biggest problem in my life is me. Um, I I can understand that. I'm a piece of work. But what about the second half of that? Can you relate to that as well? 
I know you know the disappointment side, but do you also believe the other side, that he's still working, that he's still shaping you? You know, we all face different kinds of disappointment in our lives. I mean, and everybody does. I mean, certainly if you're in, if you're, if you're in seventh grade or above, I got to say, you, you know what it's like to face disappointment in life. You know, when, you, when you're in middle school, I, I remember middle school, some big disappointments with friends, you know, some, some really hard things in friendships that started happening in middle school. Some big disappointments that made me go, what's going on? Um, you get older and you face other ones. I remember uh, when, when our daughter Maddie was a baby, when she was little. Like, if Maddie couldn't reach it, she didn't want it. <laughs> she, just was, she just was the most chill, most laid-back baby. She was just happy to sit there, and she wasn't going to go after anything. She was just happy where she was. Eventually, she started crawling, but really late. And um, eventually, she started walking, but really late. And then she didn't really start talking. Um, I mean, she, you know, she, she was trying, and she had a, a word here or there that we could make out, but not like, not like other kids, and it just seemed to be coming really slow and really difficult. So we got her in, like, you know, little three-year-old speech therapy. It's adorable. Um, and she's working on um, learning to talk. And, and I remember the phone call that I got from her speech therapist uh, in, in the kitchen of our house. I answered the phone, Andy, great guy, and he's talking to me. And, he, and finally in the conversation he says, um, Tim, I think, I think there's more than a speech here. And I remember the phrase he said, I think there's, I think there's something cognitive going on. And some of you had a phone call like that, where you get really, really big news. And it gets hard to see because you kind of get, I mean, it's like it, it impacts your brain, but it also impacts your body. You can feel it in your body. You get, like, you get kind of tunnel vision. And it gets hard to hear the rest of the conversation because all you hear is the blood rushing past your eardrums. Um, but that one phrase... And that conversation, you never forget for the rest of your life because you know that everything is going to be different than you thought it was going to be after that. And that's what that conversation was like for me. And so that was the start of a years-long process of discovering um, Maddie's unique needs and her disabilities um, uh, and a thousand therapy appointments and hundreds of nights of crying and yelling um, from her and from us or from both because she couldn't tell us what she wanted or what she felt, and we didn't understand what she wanted or what she felt. And sometimes, not very often, um, but sometimes I would pray, God, you can do anything. She could wake up tomorrow morning and be able to talk like everybody else. I know you can do that. And if you did that, God, we would never stop talking about it. You would get so much glory. We would tell everybody everywhere that our God can do anything. Our daughter couldn't talk. And then she woke up the next morning and she talked. It was amazing, you know. And that didn't happen. Maddie didn't wake up one morning, able to talk overnight. And there was disappointment in that. There was disappointment. There's, 
continued to be disappointment as, as we uncovered more and more the struggles that Maddie was going to have. It still comes up sometimes. But there also has been a lot of shaping. There's been so much of God doing um, incredibly good things, of God doing unbelievable things, of things that I just thought Maddie would never be able to do and she's able to do, of God fulfilling promises. Um, you know, uh, I think Dave Nichols mentioned a couple weeks ago, I, I have a list on my phone of things that God has done. I got a lot of lists on my phone. One of those lists is called um, uh, uh, Some Wonderful Works of God. That's what I, that's what I call the list. And uh, about half of them are things we've seen in Maddie's life. God has been shaping us even in the midst of disappointment. And it, it hasn't all been disappointment. There's been so much good, too. Maddie can talk now. You can, you can kind of have a conversation with her. It's still harder for her than it is for most people, but Maddie can talk. Um, she learned to read in the last couple of years through a lot of hard work. She's learned to read. She just graduated from Bearden High School. She's 18 years old. Um, it's amazing. Some people have disappointments that are way bigger than the disappointments that we've faced, way harder. You've got different disappointments, but I'm telling you, God is, if you will allow him, God is shaping you through them. He wants you to be his. He's called you to be his. If you belong to him, then he's not just going to leave you there. He's going to use it all, even the disappointments, to shape you. Now, remember, that does not mean that our disappointments are good things. It doesn't mean that the disappointment you're facing is God's will, that he made it happen. But sometimes we're disobedient. Sometimes someone else is disobedient. Sometimes something terrible just happens. And the God allows it, but he doesn't waste it. He does good with it. He uses it to shape us, to build our trust in him. And that's what we're talking about, God's faithfulness building our faith. So now Jacob's story just gets worse for a while. Verse 30 tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And maybe Leah thought she was never going to get married, and so she went along with her father's like, bonehead bridal switcheroo plan. I have to wonder, if she, I mean, for them to pull that off, she probably had to be in on it. Um, probably a mix of her, her disappointment is probably a mix of her doing and somebody else's. And that's the way it often is, but the reality is, is it does not go the way that she hoped. It's a lot of disappointment for her. But look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Rachel was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So isn't it interesting um, that God isn't, God isn't interested in making it fair, of making everything the same for everybody. God just does what he wants to do. And he sees Leah, and he has compassion for her. And so he opens her womb. This is what God does. We see it over and over again in God's story, is that he cares for the uncared for. He, he has a special concern for those. He, he seems to look at those who have been overlooked, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he repeatedly calls his people to compassion toward the poor, justice for the oppressed, to care for the needs of widows and orphans, outsiders, the foreigner in their land. It's who God is. And it reminds us that God still sees me in my disappointment. He's not like, okay, let the disappointment happen. I'll do some good through it eventually, and you can just you know, suffer along the way. No, he sees us in our disappointment. He's there. He's present with us. 
remember the first time I went to a Special Olympics event. Maddie was in sixth grade. It was track and field at Hardin Valley Academy out of the football stadium there. And after I left, after that event, I had the worst sore throat. I had a terrible headache. It was because I had spent three hours trying not to burst into tears. Three hours trying to hold back tears of joy. Because You maybe heard me talk about this before. I tell people about it all the time. It was the most beautiful thing. I was like, this Special Olympics thing, this is a Jesus event. That's what's going on here. It's a Jesus event. They don't call it a Jesus event. Maybe they don't even know it's a Jesus event. But this is a Jesus event. Because everybody's doing what Jesus does. They're doing it the way that God calls people to act. There's probably, I don't, I don't know, just off the top of my head, four or five, six volunteers for every athlete who's competing there. And they're all there just to serve those kids. And those kids won't be able to return the favor. They won't be able to do the same thing for them. But they're doing it anyways. You know, this is exactly what Jesus says to do. In Luke 14, he says, when you throw a party, he's telling, it's talking to a bunch of people, he says, when you throw a party, don't invite your, your relatives, don't invite your family, don't invite rich people, because you know what? They can pay you back. Instead, invite, invite people who can't pay you back. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Invite them. They can't pay you back, but God will see what you're doing, and he'll reward you for it. It's a Jesus kind of event. Um, that's what I saw going on. It was just this reminder, and things like that have happened all along the way, where because of, because of, of Maddie's difficulties, we end up getting something special, more than we thought we'd get, more than we deserve. It's like God sees us in our disappointment, and he has met us there. And that's what God does. He sees us. He's present with us, with our situation, with your situation, with Leah's situation. You notice God doesn't make everything perfect for Leah. He doesn't just come in and go, I'm going to fix this train wreck of a marriage and this huge, messy situation. I'm just going to make it so it's all good. He doesn't do that. But he also doesn't just leave her. He sees her. He reminds her that he's there. So Leah, the unloved, the unloved wife, becomes a mother. And she has four boys. But remember, this is still a messy story of real life. It's not just some happy fairy tale. Things are still getting worse. So God sees Leah in her disappointment. But that just makes Rachel jealous. That's what we do as humans. She's getting something good. Now, now Rachel's jealous. So now you have two desperate women. You've got Leah, desperate for love, and Rachel, desperate for children. And desperate people do ridiculous things. So Rachel tries what her, what her grandmother-in-law, Sarah, had done. Okay, so she sends in her servant, Rachel does, sends in her servant to her husband. Well, maybe he can get her pregnant. We'll have kids that way. So that's what happens. And her servant has two sons with Jacob. Well, Leah has stopped having babies at this point. She's like, mm, this is no, I don't like the scoreboard anymore. So she sends her servant in. Her servant has two sons with Jacob. So now she's like, oh, I'm winning again. It's six to two. I'm up. And it's, it's just it's a complete mess. So Rachel tries to take things into her own hands. And so she essentially sells the right for Jacob to spend the night with Leah um, in exchange for some mandrake roots, which was like a fertility drug in the ancient Near East, homeopathic medicine or something. So she tries, she tries to make it work another way. If that doesn't work. That still backfires. So Leah ends up having two more sons and a daughter with Jacob, and, Leah, and, and Rachel is still waiting. And finally, we get to Genesis 30, verses 22 and 24. It says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. 
She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So God sees Rachel in her, dis- in, in her disappointment. And she finally has a son of her own. And it does feel like a moment of joy. The, it's still a total mess, but at least this woman has a child. And after all of that, Jacob tells Laban that it's time to take his two wives, his two concubines, his 11 sons, his one daughter, go back to his home country. But Laban wants him to stick around, keep working for him. So they work out another deal, a shepherding deal. How, 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 now Laban is going to pay Jacob in livestock. And you'll have to read how the story goes in chapter 30 and then into 31. Read that this week. See how it all plays out. But basically, Laban tries to swindle Jacob again. Jacob is on his game. He tries to swindle Laban back, and it's back and forth. And at the end of it, after 20 years of working for Laban, Jacob leaves. And the one thing you notice is Jacob leaves a very wealthy man. He's a rich man after these 20 years of Laban trying to rip him off. He still comes out of it ahead. He's got lots of livestock, lots of servants, camels, donkeys, so many kids that he's already starting to look like he's becoming a great nation. And so you get to the end of the story like that. You go, what do I do with that? It gets ugly. The whole story is a disaster. It's not like, oh, God, there were good people and God gave them good things. And there were bad people and God gave them bad things. It's, that's not what happens. It's just everybody's a disaster and God keeps being faithful. And I think this is what we see here. That God isn't giving up even when I have. God isn't giving up even when I have. And I don't just mean, hey, God isn't giving up on you. I mean God isn't giving up on what he is going to do around you, in you, through you. It's, not, it's actually not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Jacob. God, it, so you can give up, but God is not giving up. So Jacob gives up. He tries to do it his own way. Huh? I'm going to be a great nation. I guess I better try everything I can do. I better try and cheat my way there. God says, you might have given up on me, God, uh, Jacob, but I'm not giving up. Leah gives up. Rachel, they all try and figure out how to do it their own way. And God says, no, I'm going to do it the right way. All this stuff, the polygamy, the dishonesty, the scheming, it's all Jacob, Leah, Rachel trying to make things work in their way, in their power. It's what we do. When I don't trust God, I try to figure out life my way. But even when I give up on God's way, on God's plan, on God's faithfulness, he's not giving up on the work that he's going to do around me and in me and through me. And so God's story is bigger than you. It's about, it's about him, about his faithfulness. It's also about the plan that God is unfolding, that one day this family, this messed up family, would become a great nation. Like, Leah wasn't even supposed to be in the marriage. But her son Judah is going to be the forefather of King David, who's going to be the forefather of Jesus, God himself, the Messiah. God goes, this family's totally messed up. All these families, all our families, they're totally messed up. But God doesn't give up. He's still working. And don't just think, that's Jacob, that's not me. No, it's for us too, because here's the beautiful thing about this story. Look at, look at where this ends, okay? So Genesis 31 Verses 5 and 7. You get to the end of these 20 years, and Jacob looks back, and here's what he says. He said to them, this is to his wives, "Um, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. 
You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Jacob looks back after 20 years, and he goes, I guess God was with me. He looks back and goes, I tried to do it my way. Later on in this chapter, you get to verse 42, and he says explicitly, it wasn't me. It was God who did it. I, I couldn't make it work, but God made it work. Jacob's faith has grown in the disappointment. And here's why I say it's not just Jacob, it's us too, because this isn't the end of the story. This is a picture of God's grace and mercy at work. And what God does is he, it seems like he plays favorites. I'm sorry, Laban, you're not going to get rich off this guy. I'm going to enrich Jacob because I'm doing something with him. And God seems to keep blessing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their family, and the nation of Israel. But then God himself comes to earth. And he brings good news. And this is the good news. It's not just for some select people anymore. God himself goes up on a cross and he dies and he pays the price so that anyone, it doesn't matter what your story is, it doesn't matter what you've done, everyone, you're as bad as Jacob, you're worse than Jacob. He says, no, I want you to be mine. And all you have to do is come. Just come to me in faith and trust me as your king. Trust me as your father. And when you do that, To you, I will give the right to become sons and daughters of God. That's all we got to do is turn to him. And then our story, we step into the very, very same story that Jacob was in, one of being blessed by God so that we can be a blessing to the world around us. And in our disappointments, God will not leave us alone. He will meet us there. He'll see us there. And he will work in us and he will shape us, and he will build our faith. So step forward. Step towards him. Trust him, and he will build your... Step forward with a little bit of faith, and he will build it all along the way. He will not leave you in your disappointments. And so, people like us, we can be disappointed, um, but we don't need to despair. We don't need to despair because we are not hopeless people. We know that the God who made the universe is with us, and he's still working. And so what do we do? How do we live that out? Um, Let me give you a few next steps. One is this. This week, read the the story. We had to skim through it. Read Genesis 26 to Genesis 35. That will take you from where we were last week all the way through the story we covered up until where we'll be next week. Just read it. It's all narrative stuff, okay? Um, And just see what God is like and what he's doing there. Second thing is this, engage with this story via the live it out. We got it in your bulletin. We've been talking about that a lot lately. Just say, I'm going to go for it. Um, I'm going to see what God does. The people around me, what if there's a bunch of us who just say, we're going to keep consistently engaging with the same passages of scripture, um, wrestling with the same questions, see what conversations it brings up between you, your family, the people around you, engage via the, those live it out questions in there. And the third thing is something that's going to take some time, and we're going to start it here together um, now. But it might take you more than this morning. It might take you a couple days or a week or longer than that. But here's what it is. See it there. Name a disappointment you've held against God, and then begin the process of repentance. Here's what I mean. Maybe there's been a disappointment in your life, or maybe there's one you're in right now, and you go, maybe, not a, maybe you haven't said the words, but you know in your heart, your, your attitude has been, God, you've left me. God, 
you've forgotten me, or God, you did this to me. I said, begin the process of repentance in that. You got to understand what repentance is. We sometimes think of repentance as, I was bad, so now I'll be good. That's not really what repentance is. Repentance is, I was wrong. I, I was wrong. I was wrong about reality. I was wrong about what's happening around me. I was wrong about the truth. I believed the wrong thing. I want to know what's true. I want to believe what's right. I want to turn from a lie to reality. And the idea that God has abandoned you or isn't with you or isn't, isn't going to use what's happening to you, that's wrong. It's just not true. And so repentance is to turn and believe that he is with you, that he sees you, and that he won't waste your pain. As hard as that is to believe. So that's what I mean by process. It, you don't just say, okay, I believe differently now. It's a process. It's a conversation with him. It's lots of conversations with him. The bigger the disappointment, the bigger that process is. But he'll be faithful. He's not going to give up. So we're going to do that now here, down in Blend, and in Amt, and Roan County, and Bearden. We're, we're just going to take a, a moment and start, just start to have that conversation with God. Maybe just say, God, where have I faced disappointment? And I believed it was you disappointing me. Help me to see what you're doing, God. And help me to trust you. So we're going to start that conversation now. Let's take a moment and do that. God, we just ask that you would speak. In, the, in this next moment, God, remind us of your great love for us so that we'll trust you. It's not easy work to do with God, and I don't, you don't just get there immediately. So maybe what you need is somebody to, to pray with you. Maybe you're going, I, I don't, I don't trust that God is good in the middle of this. I can't believe that. Maybe you need somebody to pray for you. Our prayer teams are, are here. What we're going to do is we're going to respond to God. Listen to the words that we sing. Um, sing them to God. Sing them to your own heart. Uh, 
but you might just need to continue the conversation with God. You might just need to stay right where you are in your seat and, and continue talking with him. You might need to come and pray with somebody from our prayer teams. They'll be here during the song and after the service. We're going to respond to him now. So if you would, stand and let's sing.